Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled, Adjuvant Treatment of Early Stage Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer and the Era of Immunotherapy, is provided by Access Medical Education and is supported by an educational grant from Merck Sharpen Dome Corporation. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Hello and welcome to this educational activity titled Adjuvant Treatment of Early Stage Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer and the Era of Immunotherapy. I'm Dr. Heather Wakeley, Professor of Medicine and Chief of the Division of Oncology at Stanford University. I'm also the Deputy Director of the Stanford Cancer Institute and President of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, IASLC. First, a disclaimer and disclosure indicating that we may be discussing off-label use of approved agents or agents that are in development. And here are my financial disclosures. During this activity, we will review the role of immunotherapy in early stage non-small cell lung cancer as adjuvant treatment, recent clinical data for immune checkpoint inhibitors of adjuvant treatment, and recent and ongoing clinical trials for adjuvant and neoadjuvant immune therapy for the treatment of early stage non-small cell lung cancer. Let's get started. In order to talk about the different stages, it's important that we view the staging criteria and be mindful of the fact that the staging system keeps changing, a lot of it based on work by ISLC and the pathologists in that group. Here we see the eighth edition from 2017. The ninth edition will be coming out relatively soon. I think the main things to highlight is when you are meeting a new patient and figuring out the staging, you wanna be very mindful of the size of the tumor, but especially the lymph node involvement, as that is what really determines stage more than anything when we're dealing with our early stage patients. Now, when we talk about adjuvant treatment, um, as well as neoadjuvant treatment, quote unquote, perioperative therapy, we always wanna keep in mind that the surgery is really the key, the most important part of the treatment. But all of our newer developments for adjuvant and neoadjuvant are there to help improve the outcomes from surgery because surgery alone, though can cure a large number of patients, we still have room to go. Now, when we think about the management approach overall for patients who are uh, historically considered having resectable disease, surgery is the primary treatment of choice. And there have been multiple phase three trials that show that chemotherapy can be helpful but on the order of only maybe a 5% survival benefit at five years. And that was based on multiple randomized trials looking at giving adjuvant post-operative chemotherapy as well as neoadjuvant preoperative chemotherapy where neither approach seemed that different from each other. We also have patients with early stage disease who do not have resectable disease. And that includes a lot of our patients with stage 3A um, and almost all patients with stage 3B or 3C disease. Now, going back in time, we do see this chemotherapy benefit of approximately 5% when the chemotherapy is given after surgery. And we spent many years trying to improve upon that, uh, debating what was the best chemotherapy, how could we pick which patients needed chemotherapy, could we add anything to the chemotherapy. Uh, I did a big trial with bevacizumab, but we didn't really make any progress. We were stuck with 
four cycles cisplatin-based chemotherapy was helpful. We couldn't really pick which patients were more likely to benefit, and we just didn't move forward very much. However, we did start to learn a lot about better treatment for patients with metastatic lung cancer. And really the biggest uh, changes that we saw were in our understanding of molecular targets and how to best treat patients with tumors that had molecular targets. And then, of course, the development of immune therapy, which is particularly effective in patients who don't have tumors with molecular targets and sometimes with those as well. So the logical steps were to take what we learned in the metastatic setting and transfer it into early stage disease. And there have been multiple trials looking at the targeted treatment approaches in the perioperative setting. Most of those have been done with the EGFR TKIs. And there have been a number of studies that looked at giving adjuvant post-operative EGFR TKI, trials that were done with gefitinib and with erlotinib and others. And those studies showed interesting, significant benefits in disease-free survival but it not really shown an overall survival benefit. And when one looks at the hazard ratios for disease-free survival benefit, they were good, but not phenomenal and really did not change practice. Then we saw the results of the ADORA trial. And the ADORA study used adjuvant osimertinib, the third generation EGFR-TKI, that has become the standard of care first-line option for patients who have activating driver mutations in EGFR and are diagnosed with metastatic disease. So the ADORA trial enrolled patients um, who had completely resected stage 1B, 2, or 3A non-small cell lung cancer. They either could or did not need to have had adjuvant chemotherapy. They needed to have an activating driver mutation, uh, including either EGFR exon 19 deletion or L858R, and they were then enrolled on the study and randomized to either get osimertinib once daily for uh, a couple of years, actually three years, or to get a placebo once daily also for three years. And patients were uh, continued on treatment for those three years unless they had a recurrence um, or discontinued for another reason. And this study showed very, very striking results. Um, the disease-free survival hazard ratio uh, was less than 0.2. You know, we just don't see those sorts of results. But we haven't seen the long-term results yet, and so there's still some questions. But we have established that osimertinib is a standard approach now for patients who have undergone a complete resection for early-stage lung cancer with tumors that harbor an activating EGFR mutation. The difference is benefit is particularly seen in patients with stage 2 and 3A disease, and less so for patients with stage 1B, but that is still something that is talked about with patients in that setting. There are ongoing trials looking at whether we can get similar approaches with uh, very potent ALK inhibitors, as well as long-term follow-up happening with ADORA to see how this might impact overall survival. And with that, I'm now going to transition and talk more about immune therapy because that has an impact for a much larger group of patients. And the role of adjuvant immune therapy was just recently established in 2021 with the uh, Empower O&O trial results. I will back up and mention that we had been seeing hints of perioperative benefit of immune therapy with early results from neoadjuvant trials showing that single 
uh, agent uh, immune therapy with trials with nifolumab, tezolizumab, pembrolizumab, all showed that there was a benefit in that there would be some patients with a major pathological response, meaning less than 10% viable tumors at the time of surgery, and that those results were even better when we looked at combined chemotherapy and immune therapy um, in studies such as Nadine. But we hadn't seen any results from the adjuvant postoperative treatment until Empower O&O results were presented in June of 2021. Uh, it's not surprising that the neoadjuvant data comes first because you get to get a sneak peek and see how the tumors have responded. But what we really want to look at is how do the patients benefit? And that's where we have data now from the adjuvant as well as neoadjuvant setting. So the Empower O&O trial um, enrolled patients with completely resected stage 1B, 2, and 3A non-small cell lung cancer. They had to have had a lumpectomy or pneumonectomy, and they needed to have tumor tissue available for PDL1 testing. Patients then went on to get up to four cycles of a cisplatin-based adjuvant chemotherapy regimen, giving cisplatin with either pemetrexa, gemcitabine, docetaxel, or venerelbine, so trying to mimic what's done in real-world practice. After completion of the chemotherapy, patients who remained on study, and there, there were patients who dropped off during the chemotherapy phase because they just didn't want to keep going, uh, but patients who completed were then randomized one-to-one -to, -one to either get up to one year of atezolizumab at the 1,200 milligram every three-week dosing or to continue on best supportive care. And just over 1,000 patients were randomized and then continued with follow-up. Now, the study was designed with a hierarchical statistical testing plan such that the first group analyzed uh, were those patients whose tumors had some pdl one expression of at least 1% and had stage 2 to 3A disease. Disease-free survival in that was analyzed, and if it met its uh, statistical significance boundary, then we were to look at all comers who had stage 2 to 3A disease, regardless of PD-1 expression of the tumor, look for disease-free survival there. The next step was to look at disease-free survival in all patients on the trial. So that brings in the stage 1B patient population. And the final analysis is with overall survival. And at the uh, presentations that were uh, initially given at ASCO 2021 and continued uh, with follow-up at other meetings, um, the first two primary endpoints were met. The third was in the intention to treat population and uh, had not reached statistical significance at the time of presentation, meaning that not enough events had happened in total to be able to call one way or the other, um, nor has overall survival been presented. But I'm gonna back up now and talk a little bit about who actually went on the trial. So the, the patients who ended up on the trial uh, like I said, there were over 1,000 patients who were randomized. Two-thirds of the patients had non-squamous histology, and most of them had stage 2 and 3A disease. And more specifically, 12% had stage 1B, 41% had stage 3A, and the rest had stage 2. It's also important to note that over half of the patients, 55%, had tumors with some PDL1 expression of at least 1%, but that means that 45% did not. This trial also allowed enrollment of patients with tumors that had EGFR mutations or ALK translocation, so that was a minority of the patients enrolled on the trial. 
Now the, the take home from the study uh, were the disease-free survival. Um, and when we look at patients whose tumors had some pedo one expression and they had stage two to three A disease, the disease-free survival hazard ratio was 0.66, highly statistically significant. And this actually is the patient population where we now have an FDA approval to give adjuvant atezolizumab. Again, for patients with completely resected stage two to three A disease, whose tumors have pd one expression of at least 1%. When we look at the all stage two to three A patient population, regardless of pd one expression, that hazard ratio is 0.79. And in the intention to treat, Again, we had not seen enough events for statistical significance to be called one way or the other, but that hazard ratio was 0.81. Looking in more detail at the disease-free survival and the subgroups of patients with PDL1 of at least 1% and stage 2 to 3A, pretty much every subgroup had benefit. There were a couple of outliers that are a little uh, confusing. Patients who were actively smoking did not seem to have as much benefit, but the numbers were small and uh, significance boundaries crossed unity, so un unclear what the significance of that was. We also do see that patients who had ALK rearrangements, translocations, had no benefit regardless of pd one expression. Patients who had tumors with EGFR mutations, though, maybe had benefit if their tumors did have pd one expression, but still trying to understand that patient population better. When we look at the disease-free survival in all randomized stage 2 to 3A patients, it's very, very clear that that pdl one expression is very important in the outcome of this trial. And patients whose tumors had pdl one expression of greater than 50% had by far the most benefit, the disease-free survival hazard ratio of 0.43. Um, when we look at patients who had no pdl one expression in this trial, there was no benefit. And so that's something to keep in mind as we talk about some of the other studies looking at adjuvant immune therapy. Going into more detail by PDL1 expression, patients who had PDL1 expression less than 1% on their tumor, the disease free survival hazard ratio in Empower 010 was 0.97. But if there's any PDL1 expression, it was 0.66, mostly driven by the greater than 50% tumor expression of PDL1 patient population where that hazard ratio is 0.43. And patients whose tumors had 1 to 49% expression, that was 0.87. So still trying to tease all of that out, but clearly the biggest benefit is seen in those patients with high pd one expression. So coming back to the patients with completely resected stage 2 to 3A disease, pd one expression of at least 1%, that disease-free survival hazard ratio was 0.66, and the US FDA has granted approval for use of atezolizumab in that patient population. Still waiting for the overall survival data, but the initial uh, survival curves do seem to be separating in a positive way. I'm now going to mention there are multiple other ongoing phase three trials looking at adjuvant immune therapy. We have recently learned that the PEARLS trial, Keynote 091, using adjuvant pembrolizumab in a very similar study designed to the Empower 010 with adjuvant atezolizumab, the PEARLS trial was also positive for disease-free survival in all comers. And what we know from that study is that that benefit was seen regardless of pdl one expression. And in the press release, they go on to mention that patients whose tumors had pd one expression greater than 50% uh, 
did not have a statistically significant benefit. So there's a lot to still be learned as we hear further about this. Um, but if the PEARLS trial turns out to, to be as positive as the press release indicates, it's very likely that we'll be seeing adjuvant pembrolizumab as an option in the future as well. For our listeners, there has been an update since the day of this recording. In the PEARLS trial, adjuvant treatment with pembrolizumab significantly improved disease-free survival, reducing the risk of disease recurrence or death by 24% compared to placebo in patients with stage 1b to 3a non-small cell lung cancer following surgical resection regardless of pdl one expression with a hazard ratio of 0.76. The median DFS was 53.6 months for pembrolizumab versus 42.0 months for placebo. Uh, coming later will be the um, nivolumab, adjuvant nivolumab study, the ANVIL component of the um, NCTN, uh, U.S. Cooperative Group study. And then we have the uh, BR31 study with adjuvant dervalumab and still awaiting those results. So with that, I'm now going to pause and move into some cases because uh, it's great to hear all of that data, but it gets overwhelming as we go through all those disease-free survival hazard ratios. What does it mean in real life when we're dealing with a patient in front of us? So the first case is a 52-year-old um, Asian-American man who has an extensive smoking history and presented with hemoptysis. He had a chest X-ray done, which showed a right upper lobe mass. CT scan confirmed um, this mass 4.5 centimeters in size, and he was seen to have a right paratracheal lymph node on PET scan. In addition to the primary mass and no, no other PET positive areas, brain MRI was negative. He went to surgical resection and had a right upper lobectomy. Complete resection, PDL one of the tumor 70%. Uh, EGFR, ALK, ROS, all negative. He did have a KRAS G12A mutation identified. Um, so we do the staging. This was a stage T2BN2, stage 3A lung adenocarcinoma. Again, PDL1 70%, no driver mutations other than this KRAS G12A. And so the question is would you give adjuvant chemotherapy? Would you offer adjuvant immune therapy? He actually went on to receive four cycles of adjuvant cispot and pemetrexid. He developed a mild peripheral neuropathy, subsequently started on adjuvant atezolizumab, developed uh, hypothyroidism, and started on thyroid replacement therapy, but otherwise tolerated it well um, and is still being followed at this time. With case two, we have a 57-year-old woman with a remote history of tobacco use. She quit 15 years ago. Uh, she has three months of cough. CT scan of her chest showed a 5.7 centimeter right upper lobe mass, slightly enlarged right-sided hilar nodes. She underwent a bronchoscopic biopsy of the right hilar lymph nodes, which unfortunately showed that she had adenocarcinoma of the lung. pd one expression was 1%. CT further evaluation, CT MRI brain, showed no other evidence of distant metastatic disease, and she was felt to have a T3N1 stage 3A disease. So based on the stage 3A uh, disease, she underwent uh, resection uh, with medial uh, mediastinal lymph node dissection, then had adjuvant cispot and pemetrexid, and then had adjuvant atezolizumab uh, for one year. And I think we want to be thinking through the fact that at this time we have adjuvant atezolizumab, 
but it's very likely that other immune checkpoint inhibitors will be approved in the near future. Uh, again, we've only so far heard about the PEARLS trial with adjuvant pembrolizumab, waiting to hear about the data with adjuvant nivolumab, adjuvant dervalumab, and then we will have the difficult task of trying to tease through all the results and what does it mean uh, with different pdl one expression levels, how do we choose between agents. However, coming back to case two, the other part of that question is what about molecular testing? So what if we had identified an EGFR L858R mutation in this patient? Uh, would we then have considered adjuvant osimertinib versus continuing with an adjuvant immune checkpoint inhibitor? We still need to see more data before we really know what to do. At this point, though, the standard of care would be to give adjuvant osimertinib until we learn more about what does it mean to have EGFR mutated lung cancer with PDL1 expression, and in that setting, what's our best treatment option. All right, so now I'm going to talk a little bit more about neoadjuvant treatment. Talked a little bit about this uh, earlier, but to put in a little bit more detail, with neoadjuvant nivolumab, this was really the first step. So nivolumab given with three milligrams per kilogram for just two doses resulted in a 10% partial response rate by imaging and a major pathological response rate of 43%, meaning that 43% of the patients who were on this study showed less than 10% viable tumors at the time of their surgical resection. That's pretty exciting. And this is really what launched this interest in neoadjuvant therapy. Subsequent trials have shown a closer to maybe 20% major pathological response rate with single agent checkpoint inhibitors. So the field is moving forward now with combinations with chemotherapy and checkpoint inhibitors in the neoadjuvant setting. So the Nadine trial, a Spanish study, enrolled 46 patients who got neoadjuvant nivolumab and carboplatin paclitaxel chemotherapy. There were some patients with delays um, related to having to pause to get their treatment, recover, but they all got to surgery on time. And remarkable progression-free survival and overall survival at uh, now two and three years being reported. And a major pathological response rate that was over 70%. So 74%. Over half of patients, 57%, had a pathological complete response. No viable tumor after just three doses of chemotherapy nivolumab. So really exciting. And that led to the randomized phase three Checkmate 816 study which was for patients with a potentially resectable disease who received chemotherapy or chemotherapy plus nivolumab for three cycles. And when we saw the results of the Checkmate 816 in 2021, uh, we saw that the major pathological response rate was quite good. The pathological complete response rate was 24%, so a quarter of patients, no viable tumor. And the addition of the nivolumab did not in any way interfere with patients being able to go to surgery. In fact, surgeries tended to be faster um, and uh, more complete when the patients had had the combination neoadjuvant therapy. Uh, we now know that the event-free survival was also in favor of the combination. For our listeners, there has been an update since the day of this recording. The FDA has approved nivolumab in combination with platinum doublet chemotherapy for adult patients with resectable non-small cell lung cancer in the neoadjuvant setting. So there are multiple other ongoing studies looking at other neoadjuvant approaches. 
Um, so this would be a neoadjuvant um, uh, with combination of chemotherapy plus uh, pembrolizumab, chemotherapy plus atezolizumab, uh, chemotherapy plus or minus dervalumab, um, chemotherapy plus or minus nivolumab we already heard about. I will mention that nivolumab plus ipilimumab, the CTLA-4 drug, was one of the arms of Checkmate 816, but did not show any advantage and that was not continued. So uh, the jury will be out about whether in the neoadjuvant setting it's going to be chemo plus single-agent checkpoint inhibitor or chemo plus combinations, and that'll be something that will be looked at further. I will also mention that so far in the adjuvant setting, we've only seen data with single-agent immune checkpoint inhibitors given after chemotherapy. And that was from the Empower 010 atezolizumab, uh, the Keynote 091 with pembrolizumab. The next steps are going to be adding chemotherapy plus immune checkpoint inhibitors. In fact, um, we've already talked about the NCTN study uh, with that's the Alchemist trial where Anvil with, with the adjuvant nivolumab was one of the arms. There's a new arm being added, which is looking at chemotherapy plus or minus pembrolizumab. And so that will be one of the first chemo plus immune checkpoint inhibitors trials in the adjuvant setting and more will certainly be coming. And then we'll have to figure out, should we give adjuvant or neoadjuvant, chemo plus immune checkpoint inhibitor, immune checkpoint inhibitor alone, chemo alone, lots and lots of ongoing questions. Um, I'm now going to turn to talk a little bit more about the molecular subsets, uh, looking at PDL1 levels, looking at um, molecular drivers. I've talked already about the importance of PDL1 level in the Empower 010 study. When we look at the Checkmate 816 trial, this is the neoadjuvant chemo and nivolumab study, we see that the PDL1 levels mattered here as well. Regardless of PDL1, there was benefit with the combination of chemo plus the nivolumab. However, there was more benefit uh, for patients whose tumors had higher expression of PDL1. So that PDL1 level did seem to matter. We know from the Keynote 091 press release that maybe PDL1 levels don't matter as much in that trial, but we haven't seen the details yet to try to understand how that fits into the rest of these other studies. And we're, of course, waiting for multiple ongoing trials to read out to try to fully understand the story of PDL1 expression and perioperative immune checkpoint inhibitors. Also important to talk about, we know that patients, tumors, can have PDL1 expression, but they also can have driving mutations. And sometimes the PDL1 expression is more important or equally important, and sometimes that driver mutation is all that matters. So we do know that patients whose tumors have ALK translocations, ROS1, PDL1 levels can be high, but that does not mean that they're going to respond to a checkpoint inhibitor. So it's really important that we know the whole story of the tumor, not just the PDL1 level, but also what's going on with the driver mutation. And if I see a patient who has ALK translocation, ROS1, I'm not going to give them an immune checkpoint inhibitor, even if their PDL1 expression is 95%. Um, in the setting of other drivers, uh, such as KRAS, we know that PDL1 um, can matter and that checkpoint inhibitors work well. Um, others that are more complicated, well, what about EGFR? In general, patients whose tumor has EGFR mutations are less likely to benefit, but if they have high PDL1, maybe they do. In the metastatic setting, we know there's some patients who benefit. 
in early stage disease, still trying to figure all that out. Um, so there is a lot to learn about still in this. Um, it's a very um, ever-growing complexity type of situation, um, but really exciting developments for our patients. Um, and with that, I'm going to give you a few uh, take-home messages. Neoadjuvant immune therapy is promising with proven improvements in major pathological response, event-free survival, and likely we will have FDA approval for treatment options in that setting in the near future. For our listeners, there has been an update since the day of this recording. Nivolumab is now FDA-approved in combination with platinum doublet chemotherapy as neoadjuvant treatment for patients with resectable non-small cell lung cancer as a result of the Checkmate 816 trial. Adjuvant immune therapy confers proven disease-free survival benefit with atezolizumab in patients whose tumors were stage 2 to 3A and had pd one expression of at least 1%. Adjuvant pembrolizumab sounds like it will be an option in the near future as well, maybe regardless of pd one expression, but we're still waiting for more data. Atezolizumab has been approved as an adjuvant treatment now following platinum-based chemotherapy. And as mentioned, pembrolizumab will likely also be an option in the near future. And likely we'll also be seeing positive data with the other immune checkpoint inhibitors that are ongoing in studies, but we don't know when we'll see that data. And the benefit might be even more in the adjuvant setting when we combine chemo and immune therapy together, but data forthcoming. Patients and tumor-specific biomarkers are necessary to predict benefit. Uh, we need to really understand PDL1. We need to fully understand the tumor mutation relevance, and there are a lot of other factors that go into determining um, immune responses, and these are the host factors as well as other tumor-specific factors. CTDNA and MRD technology may help predict those in need of additional therapy, but we are a ways away yet from being able to have that be a standard treatment practice. So again, thank you very much for your participation in this activity. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Axis Medical Education and is supported by an educational grant from Merck Sharp and Dome Corporation. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.